0: My name is Goliath, I was born in Iran, and my family and I immigrated to the States when I was 11, and I will be reading John 3, uh, John chapter 3, verse 1 through 19 in Farsi. This is my son Griffin, he's going to do the English version for you first.
1: Uh, Please rise for the reading. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But, you, but uh, still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the son of man just as moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up and that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have a etern- but have eternal life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil.
0: Please try to follow along one more time. It'll make me less nervous if you're not looking at me. You had no fastless <laughs> I a yekton یک نفر از فراسیان به نام نیکودیموس که از بزرگان قوم یهود بود یک شب نزد عیسی آمد و به او گفت ای استاد ما می‌دانیم تو معلمی هستی که از طرف خدا آمده ای زیرا هیچ کس نمی‌تواند معجزاتی را که تو می کنی انجام دهد مگر آنکه خدا با او باشد عیسی پاسخ داد یقین بدان تا شخص از تو تولد نباید نمی‌تواند پادشاهی خدا را ببیند نیکودیموس گفت چطور ممکن است پیری از متولد دوباره بشود، آیا میتواند باز به رحم مادر خود برگردد و دوباره تولد یابد؟ ایسا پاسخ داد، یقین به دان که هیچ کس نویتواند به پادشاهی خدا وارد شود مگر آن که از آب و روح تولد یابد. آنچه از جسم تولد بیابد جسم است و آنچه از روح متولد گردد روح است. تعجب نکن که به تو میگویم همه باید دوباره متولد شود، باد هر جا که بخواهد می‌وزد. میوزد صدای آن را میشنوی اما نمی‌دانی از کجا میاید یا به کجا می‌رود. حالت کسی هم که از روح خدا متولد میشود همینطور است نقدیموس در جواب گفت این چطور ممکن است ایسا و ایسا گفت آیا تو که یک معلم بزرگ اسرائیل هستی این چیزا را نمی‌دانی؟ یقین بدان که ما از آنچه نمیدانیم میدانیم سخن میگویم و آن چه دیده ایم شهادت میدهیم ولی شما شهادت ما را قبول نمی کنید وقتی درباره امور زمینی سخن میگویم و آن را باور نمی کنید اگر درباره امور آسمانی سخن میگویم چگونه باور خواهید کرد؟ کسی هرگز به آسمان بالا نرفت مگر آن کسی که از آسمان پایین آمد یعنی پسر انسان که جایش در آسمان هست همانطوری که موسی در بیابان ما را بر باله تیری قرار داد، پسر انسان هم باید بالا برده شود. تا هر کس به او ایمان بیاورد، صاحب یهاد جا... جا... جاودان گردد. زیرا خدا جهانیان را انقدر محبت نمود که پسر یگانه خود را داد تا هر که به او ایمان بیاورد، حلاک نگردد برکه صاحب حیات جاودان شود، زیرا خدا پسر خود را بر جهان نفرستاد که جهانیان را محکوم نماید بلکه تا آنان را انجتاد بخشد. هر کس به او ایمان بیاورد محکوم نمی شود، اما کسی که به او ایمان نیاورد در محکومیت باقی می ماند. زیرا به اسم پسر یگانه خدا ایمان آورده است. This is the word of the Lord. Can I
2: have a seat? St. Augustine, who is arguably the most revered theologian in history, was walking along by the seaside, and this was his normal practice, it's what he'd always do on Sunday afternoon between services. It would rest his mind to walk along the sand and watch the waves wash in. And on this one particular day, there was a young boy who was digging a hole in the sand with a shovel and then running to get bucket after bucket of salt water to pour it in that hole. And Augustine stopped and after watching him for a couple of minutes, walked up to him and said, what are you doing? And the boy replied, I'm gonna take that great big ocean and put it in this little hole. To which Augustine gently said, my son, that ocean is far too big to place in that little hole. And the boy looked up at him and said, easier for me to take that great big ocean and put it in this little hole than for you to take that great big Trinitarian God and put it in your little mind, Bishop Augustine. And with that, the child disappeared, an angel sent to remind him just what he was trying to touch through all of his teachings. Now, we have no idea if that story isn't completely allegorical or if it contains some level of truth, but it's one that's been passed down throughout church history because it's worth remembering. There's a dose of humility that's offered in the form of a boy with a bucket of salt water that is important for us today because for the past couple of months, we have been talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of that great big Trinitarian God, and that is no small undertaking. So we have to remember just what it is that we're trying to touch with all of these teachings. And I wanna say uh, you, my friends, have been leaning in and going for it. Well done. And I wanna say that we've gotta continue to tread with humility and love, remembering just the magnitude of the one that we're here to pursue demonstrating the gospel is the name of the practice that we've been in, and it's really come in three parts. Part one was a reintroduction to the person of the Holy Spirit through uh, water, breath, and dove, these three metaphors that we see throughout Scripture. Part two has been an invitation into understanding and experiencing. and and practicing the expressions of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about prophecy, healing, and this coming Wednesday, deliverance. And today marks the beginning of part three, which is an invitation into the life of the Spirit. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna close out the practice with a couple of words that I believe that God has laid on my heart, particularly for Bridgetown Church at this time. And up for today is the subtle tragedy of Nicodemus. So we're going to retrace some of our steps. We're going to return to a few key scenes and provocative metaphors where we've spent time already to take a close look at the most subtle of cautionary tales. Nicodemus is there, looming on the fringes of the very places that we have been, but he did not come close enough to know the life of the Spirit. John's Gospel tells us the subtle tragedy of Nicodemus in three major scenes, which I'm going to retitle today, Pulling an All-Nighter a view from the riverbank, and a proper burial. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to begin where Goliath just read from, with scene one, pulling an all-nighter. Now, one of my great loves is reading memoir. I fall asleep basically every night, reading the story of someone else told through their own two eyes. I cannot get enough of this. And over time, I've noticed a pattern, that there's a form that works if you're putting together a memoir. It goes something like this. Open with a climactic scene. Some moment that in some way serves as the hinge point of the author's story, then reset to childhood build all the way back up to that climactic scene, and then the second half of the book is exploring the implications of that climactic scene. For example, the most recent memoir I've read is Philip Yancey's Where the Light Fell, and it opens with him in his childhood living room having returned from college to introduce his new girlfriend to to his family of origin, and they're sitting there on his couch flipping through old photo albums, laughing at his childhood haircuts and all that sort of thing. We've all been there together, right? And they flip one page and a newspaper clipping just drifts out of one of the photo albums and lands on the ground. And so Yancey reaches down and he picks up this newspaper clipping and it's a photo of his parents that he's never seen of his father in the hospital and it lying in bed, and his mother standing there next to his father. And the article below details the fact that his dad, who was sick with polio, was removed from medical care very stubbornly because he believed that prayer and only prayer was going to miraculously heal him. That article was dated nine days before his father's death. So Yancey always knew that he grew up fatherless because polio had taken the life of his dad, but until that moment, he did not know that he grew up fatherless, at least in part, to a dysfunctional view of faith healing that was within his family. All of a sudden, that context came into his story at that moment as he was flipping through photo albums in college with his new girlfriend. Chapter two, reset to childhood. Fill in the backstory, build back up to that moment. That's how it works. And it works, let me tell you. It works. So John tells Nicodemus' story much in the same way. He drops us into a climactic moment, maybe the climactic moment, the hinge point that everything built up to and then descends from. It goes like this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, two things are happening here that we need to notice. The first is that Nicodemus is sincerely seeking. He calls Jesus a teacher sent from God. That's a very Jewish way of saying Jesus might just be the Messiah. He might be the Savior, teacher sent from God, uh, could also be translated the teacher who would arise in the last days, the one the prophets talked about. The second thing that's going on is John, the author, is foreshadowing Nicodemus' rejection of Jesus. Because in John chapter 1, there's this long poetic description of Jesus as the light who would come in to pierce the dark. That rousing introduction also includes the tragic admission that his own will reject him because they love the dark more than the light. Then, not a page later, Nicodemus comes to talk with Jesus in the dark. John is distinct among the gospel authors in many ways, but one of them is this, that he writes more cinematically. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are essentially documentary filmmakers. They are gathering all these true events together, interviewing so many different people, and the real task is editing all of that into a coherent story. But John uh, wrote later, and he structured his narrative much more like a feature film. It's heavy with symbolism and imagery. He was Scorsese before they started handing out Oscars. He plays with the themes of light and dark all throughout his gospel. He's hinting from the beginning of where the scene is going. And what he hints at here in the beginning, he will drive a nail in at the very end. So beyond just the symbolism that John is using, why is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night? All right. You know, again and again throughout this teaching series, we're just insisting that I use the Pentecostal mic, which is so, (laughs) so fitting with uh, the content. Anyway, beyond just the symbolism, why is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night? Because as the text points out, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the most devout and elite Jewish sect at that time in history. He wasn't just a member of the Pharisees though, he was the creme de la creme. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's not just a pastor, he's a celebrity pastor. He has preachers in sneakers, but they were sandals, nice sandals, probably Birkenstocks. And the Pharisees justifiably get a bad rap. But John presents Nicodemus not as some power seeker, but as an academic elite whose heart had remained pure, who was humble enough to keep his eyes open, and who came to Jesus to say, could you really be the one that it all points to? But also all that he'd gained, all that he had become, meant that he had so much to lose. So he came at night so that nobody would know. Let's keep reading. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. Now let's stop for a second. Jesus cuts past all the pleasantries. Nicodemus starts with the flattering introduction. Jesus does not return flattery with flattery. He cuts right to the heart of the issue. And Jesus' response reveals the secret discontent that lives within Nicodemus. Kingdom of God is important terminology because it is the very field in which Nicodemus is supposed to be an expert. So why on earth is an expert in the kingdom of God coming at midnight to ask an unproven, unqualified teacher about the kingdom of God? Well, because teachers who are looked up to, who are depended on to give answers, also live with this internal disparity that who I really am and who all these people think I am are two different people. That the better I get as a rabbi and the more my reputation grows, the more I also feel like a fraud because I know so much more than I live. And the longer I live and the more knowledge I acquire, the wider that gap gets between what I understand and what I express through my life. And so Jesus takes aim at the question that lies beneath the question, at the secret hidden distance that Nicodemus has between what I say I am and who I actually am. And that lives within me and maybe even within you if you're willing to be honest with yourself as well. Jesus cuts right to the heart of Nicodemus's search. He targets his deepest desire I'm supposed to be a participant in the in-breaking kingdom of God here and now, but my belief is far outweighing my experience. So I've come to ask you in secret, in the middle of the night, where no one else can see me, it would really see me in my naked desire and longing just to ask you, is there more? Eugene Peterson writes, Nicodemus wasn't looking for theological information but for a way in not for anything more about the kingdom of God, but for a personal guide friend to show him the door and lead him in. How do I enter? He's seen something in Jesus that looks like what he's talking about. This Jesus seems to be living what I teach. So is there more than just really well-explained theory? Is there life? And if there is, can you show me the way into that life? What if the mission of the church is not to get the Bible known, or even to get the Bible spread, but to get it lived? That's what Nicodemus' heart is beating fast over. That's what has him seeking out Jesus at midnight for a Q&A. You've come seeking life? Let me show you where to find it. Let's keep reading. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can, someone enter in, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. So Jesus uh, describes entrance into the spirit-filled life through two metaphors, rebirth and baptism. First, re- rebirth, unless they are born again. Now, you have to remember who he's speaking to when he says that. Non-Jewish converts to ancient Judaism were called children newly born in a lot of ancient rabbinical literature. So Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in his own language. He's taking a term that's reserved for Gentiles who are trying to enter the ranks, the very lowest rank of the chosen people, to say to a member of the ruling priesthood, the highest rank, you want in on this life? Then become like that. Like the lowest one. And then there's baptism. Jesus doubles down on the same point with the second metaphor, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now, there's a whole lot of confusion over that phrase, water and the Spirit. But the scholarly consensus is that Jesus is is using both to refer to baptism and not two different baptisms. One baptism symbolized through two different metaphors, both pointing at the same thing. And at this time in history, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, baptism wasn't a practice for Jews. Baptism was reserved exclusively for Gentiles converting to Judaism, symbolically dying to their national heritage and identity to come alive in that, the lineage of the chosen people of God. It was a way for people who were not of chosen lineage to humbly enter into the story of God's redemption. In essence, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a priest of the ruling council, here's how you enter, become like a newborn infant like the very lowest members of the temple that you oversee. I would say it this way. If you want to know the life of the Spirit, you've got to take off those robes. Because Nicodemus wore the robes of a priest, he wore garments of prestige and status. He had become somebody and developed an identity that he was comfortable with, happy with, safe with, and the robes he wore meant that he knew who he was. And Jesus is saying to him, you've built an identity of your own making and you've done quite well for yourself, Nick. You've climbed the ladder, you've earned respect, you've established yourself, and after all of that, your heart's still burning for more. So here's the way to more. Become nobody. Humble yourself to the lowest place. Take off those robes you've gotten so comfortable within because they're guarding you from the more that you're looking for. The prophets you revere and memorize and celebrate, the days that they all pointed to, you're living in them right now. It's here and now. It's all around you. But if you want in on this life, you're going to have to become like a child again. You're going to have to look and maybe even feel like a fool for a time. You're going to have to lay down the identity that you've made for yourself and grown comfortable, and you're going to have to take off those robes. Now, knowing that that would be a hard pill to swallow, Jesus brings the spirit-empowered life even further onto Nicodemus's turf using another metaphor that he can connect with. Continuing on in the passage with verse 7, "'You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again,' The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, the words wind and spirit used in this passage are the same word in the ancient language. In fact, wind, breath, and spirit are the same word in the ancient Greek that John wrote in and the Aramaic that Jesus likely spoke in. That should sound familiar to you. Ruach, remember? Ezekiel's dry bones, that get filled with the breath of life. The day of Pentecost when they all spoke together in one language. The Holy Spirit is the breath. The breath that formed you out of the dust at first is now refilling your lungs to bring you to life in this time and place. The Creator is recreating with you, within you in the same way He created in the first place. Remember that? Only here Jesus uses that same familiar language to introduce a new, well, New to us at least, metaphor for the Holy Spirit, and it's wind. Now Jesus is talking to a high priest who teaches the Torah for a living. And in Genesis, it is the wind of the spirit that causes the flood waters to recede in the days of Noah. And in Exodus, it is the wind of the Spirit that blows on the Red Sea so that it parts, so that Israel can walk through free. Nicodemus doesn't understand, how can I be born again? It's impossible. Jesus speaks his own language to say the Spirit makes the the impossible possible. He's the one who delivers from the flood. He's the one who parts the waters. Nicodemus, you know this stuff. How does he do it? By the wind, by his Spirit. And in the first century Mediterranean, they weren't just aware of the mystery of the wind, they relied on the mystery of the wind. You know, when when Jesus uses that metaphor here, maybe you picture a tree whose leaves rustle in the breeze, and it's this great mystery, but almost certainly both Jesus and Nicodemus, likely for them, it brought to mind a different image, that of a boat raising its sails, because wind was how they traveled. It's how they got from A to B. It's how they exported products. It's how, it's how they did everything. Remember what the disciples said on a boat after Jesus calmed the storm. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And later, Peter described the use of the New Testament Testament gift of prophecy as those carried along by the Spirit. It's all this metaphor of the Spirit as wind connected to sailing, a boat on the water. That's likely what would have jumped to Nicodemus' mind when he was talking with Jesus. And John's gospel uses a word repeatedly for the Holy Spirit that you won't find in anywhere else in the New Testament outside of John's writings, and it's paraclete. On Jesus' final night, John 14 through 16, he uses this word paraclete five separate times to refer to himself. Jesus says that he is the paraclete, and he is sending another paraclete. He has been dwelling with them, but now he would dwell in them. He is not leaving them as orphans, though he's going away. He's coming even closer, dwelling within them by his spirit. Paraclete's a very complex word in ancient Greek, but the most straightforward translation that we've got into English is the one called alongside to help. The Holy Spirit is the one called alongside to help. In fact, this is a Greek word they still use in the Mediterranean today. So if if you were to take a trip to the Greek islands and, and rent out a boat, and then somewhere between Santorini and Mykonos, you got lost at sea and were freaking out, your only hope would be the paraclete that the Greek Coast Guard would send a smaller boat that would attach to your boat and it would tug you all the way back to the harbor. That smaller boat to this day in the Mediterranean world is called the Paraclete. So who is the Holy Spirit? He's the one called alongside to help. He's the one who comes to find you when you're lost and alone and pulls you back to the heart of the Father. A couple weeks ago on the final night of a hugely fun and absolutely packed, busy trip to England. I was in the final of, I think, what was more than 10 worship gatherings. And I got a repeated call from my wife. And so I eventually stepped out of the worship gatherings to take the call, and she just said, there's something wrong with the baby's heart. And so I returned home and I immediately went with her to see a specialist and then another specialist. And many of you won't know our story, but we're expecting our third child. And we've recently gotten some really difficult news about that child's health that ultimately has just led to a whole bunch of uncertainty and a lot of waiting that exists in front of us. And so the very next day, I'm sitting on my porch in the dark of the early morning, And I've got no kids to play with, and I've got no wife to comfort, and I've got no people to pastor. It's just me alone with God, and I'm just weeping alone. And the only prayer that would come out of me in that moment was, Holy Spirit, come and find me. Holy Spirit, come and find me. I'm lost, I'm alone, I'm drifting. I don't know where I am, and I don't know where you are. I need the paraclete to come and pull me back to the heart of the Father. Holy Spirit, come and find me. And the reason that I share that is because I think there's some in here that that's where you're at. It's so great that all of you guys have gotten really wound up about the presence and power of the Spirit, uh, but I'm alone And I thought maybe I knew where I was going, but now I'm lost and I cannot find land. And I'm pretty good at holding it together in public, but internally I'm freaking out. Holy Spirit, come and find me. And you should know that he is the paraclete. He's the one called alongside to help. And you should know that desperation does not disqualify you from the life of the Spirit. It makes you the perfect candidate. See, Nicodemus thought that holiness was in the keeping of the law, and Jesus shows us that holiness is the willingness to say, I'm lost, Holy Spirit, come and find me. So here's the way into that life. Strip off everything you've dressed yourself up in, everything that makes you feel okay and safe and secure on most days. Do you want this spirit filled life? Then you're going to need to take off those robes. Verse 9 How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Now, on the surface, it seems like he's just confused, that he's taking Jesus' metaphors literally, and he's saying, I can't climb back in my mom's womb. I don't fit in there anymore. But the scholarly consensus is actually that he's responding very defensively here, even cynically. That he felt demeaned by Jesus' invitation, so he retreated to his safe place. Jesus has exposed him for who he really is, and so he retreats back inside his intellect, back inside his robes, back inside his status and position. The commentator Leon Morris says, not liking the way the conversation is going, he chooses to misunderstand Nicodemus's sincerity turns into defensiveness. He came for an explanation and Jesus gave it to him, but the path to enter the kingdom it's the one that's going to cost him what he's unwilling to give up. You can see the kingdom speak about the kingdom, even teach about the kingdom, but if you want in, if you want the life of the kingdom, then at some point you've got to take the terrifying risk of experience. You've got to take off the robes you've gotten so comfortable wearing. Jesus says first to Nicodemus as an invitation, what he would later repeat to the whole Pharisaical priesthood as a condemnation or a rebuke. He says, "You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life." And so John, the cinematographer, ends the scene with the camera panning out as the narrator says over, "It's probably Morgan Freeman." As Morgan Freeman reads over it, "This is the verdict." Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. He makes obvious in the ending what he foreshadowed at the beginning. I told you, Scorsese, baby. (laughs) Turn ahead with me a few pages to John chapter 7. I'm going to start reading from verse 37. This is scene two, a view from the riverbank. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now we've been here too, remember? The Spirit is water, the river in Eden at the beginning of the story, Ezekiel's vision of a river deep enough to swim in. It's got trees lighting the sides, whose leaves are for healing, fish of every kind are swimming in its current and then spilling into the Dead Sea. Jesus interrupts the festival to invite people into that river, and at the end of the story, that very river is cutting through the redeemed city that will last forever. Remember this? Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Remember, Jesus' invitation, it was an interruption. Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the the procession that was performed every day. The priest would pour a cistern of water down the temple steps, reenacting Ezekiel's vision as the, the congregation, or the whole nation, gathered to sing the Psalms. They were enacting a prayer. And on the last and greatest day of the festival, the priest would pour that cistern seven times until there was so much water running down the temple steps, it looked something like a river flowing from the innermost room of the temple going east, bringing life wherever it goes. It was Ezekiel's vision, and they were doing it as a way to pray together, Lord, now, bring Ezekiel's vision to life now. And that, that holy moment is when Jesus jumped up and said, if anyone is thirsty... Come to me, and the river you're praying for will flow from within you, not from this building, but from within your body. Now, Nicodemus was a priest. We know that he was there attending the festival. John makes that clear to us in the verses that follow. But Nicodemus is not just any priest. This guy is a member of the ruling council. Was he the one pouring the water down the temple steps? Could Nicodemus have been the one leading the worship that Jesus interrupted. It's quite possible. It's quite possible that Nicodemus was leading the worship service when Jesus jumped up on those temple steps. See, that interruption was an act offensive enough to call for an emergency meeting by the high priest later. Jump ahead to verse 45 in John 7. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? "'No one ever spoke the way this man does,' the guards replied. "'You mean he has deceived you also?' the Pharisees retorted. "'Have any of the rulers of the the Pharisees believed in him?' "'No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them.'" Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, "'Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him out to find out what he's been doing?' They replied, "'Are you from Galilee too?' Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus speaks up at the meeting. He outs himself as the one who's intrigued by Jesus, who who still finds himself wondering, could he be the one? The one the prophets talked about. Could he really be the source of the living river that we're all praying for? And it's in between Jesus' holy interruption and this meeting of the minds that we discover the real issue that they're trying to sort out. So back to verse 40 now. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? They should have looked closer at the birth certificate. Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. So having experienced the power of Jesus, they're now asking about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And this is important for us to notice that the way that people encounter Jesus in scripture is is experience, then identity. People experience Jesus' saving presence and power through healing or deliverance or forgiveness or freedom. They experience his presence and then they ask, Who is that? That's the common experience we read again and again in scripture. Someone shaking off a heart-rending encounter with the presence of God and then asking, who is this Jesus? Today we tend to want all of the answers to identity up front and then maybe, maybe we're open to the experience of his saving power and presence. And in the gospels and even into the early church, it was experience leads to identity. So the temptation that we read on the pages of Scripture is to become fanatical about experiences of power and presence and never actually discover identity, this personal God that welcomes them as his children and then forms them as his disciples. But in the modern church, it's typically identity leads to experience, and experience sometimes, not always Our temptation is to become obsessed with his welcome and his formation, but then never to experience his saving power and presence. Nicodemus is approaching Jesus like a modern disciple, not an ancient one. He was the first of many to demand identity before experience, but God does not reveal himself to the world in that order. Nicodemus, like us, wanted to reverse the equation. He wanted all of his questions answered up front, and then maybe he would come to Jesus and drink. But if we want to know this king and his kingdom, it cannot happen from a safe distance. It cannot happen by spectating, and it cannot happen without risk, because God created all of us, and he makes his appeal to all of us, to our mind, yes, of course, but also to our body and our emotions and the way that we are formed most deeply by our experiences. So, if we try to figure out every last thing before opening ourselves up to experience, we are nothing more than a child at the beach trying to get the ocean into a hole that we've dug in the sand and will never reach the end of it and come that we might drink. Nicodemus' life teaches us at least this much you cannot know Jesus by spectating from a safe distance. Experience is part of his identity, and the two are inseparable. Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Was Nicodemus pouring the cistern down the temple steps? Did his heart leap when Jesus said it? Did he want to respond to that invitation? But coming that he might drink, that would have meant taking off his robe it would have meant leaving his self-made identity and becoming like a child again. And it's one thing to come to him in the dark of midnight when no one else knows. It's quite another thing to fall at his feet in the light of day on the very steps of the prestigious temple you've climbed to the top of and strip yourself of the robes of the identity that you've made for yourself. Nakedness is the prerequisite for being clothed in the Spirit's power. Luke chapter 24 After his resurrection Jesus said to his disciples I'm going to send you what my Father promised but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high The disciples that Jesus says this to are disrobing have been disrobed of di- through disappointment disrobed through plans that they made and then surrendered careers and identities and preferred futures they had built and then laid down everything That's what they'd left behind to follow Jesus. So, what is the precondition for being clothed in the Spirit's power? It's nakedness, figuratively speaking. If anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. But it don't mean you got to take off those robes, Rabbi. So, what about you? What have you cloaked yourself in that makes you feel safe and secure and okay and together and in control on most ordinary days? What have you clothed yourself in that might actually be guarding you from the very presence of the God that you've come to worship? You'll need to take off that robe. See, the subtle tragedies that Nicodemus proves to us that there is a way to live always around Jesus but still thirsty A way to get close enough to observe, to see, and even admire this river of life, but never to take off your robes that you might swim. So turn ahead with me now to John chapter 19. I'm going to begin in verse 38. And this brings us to the final scene, a proper burial. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. So here we are after, after the cross, but before the resurrection, and there's Nicodemus again. He just cannot bring himself to come all the way in, but he also can't stay away. He's on the periphery in the background of scene after scene. And the Spirit anointed Jesus like a dove at his baptism. Remember? We've been there too. Jesus began his ministry through the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, rested on me like a dove. He's anointed me to preach good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoner and the oppressed, sight for the blind, a wave of God's favor. And when Jesus claimed that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, he was claiming in an unmistakable way to be the Savior, to be the one filled with the very power of God. And he was claiming in an unmistakable way to be the one who would restrain that power in the name of love. He is the King of the everlasting kingdom. He is the Savior, just like Isaiah promised that he would be. And he's the suffering servant, just like Isaiah promised that he would be. Isaiah 53 but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him and by his wounds we are healed. Watching someone loved by power is amazing. It'll open your eyes wide and quicken your heart, but watching someone loved by suffering, that's staggering. It'll stop you in your tracks and bring you to your knees. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Hope that'll be enough. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So Nicodemus helped give Jesus, a crucified criminal, a proper burial. And some speculate that Nicodemus became a disciple of Jesus at this point because this is such a courageous act of honor. That at the very moment when association with Jesus is at its highest, when all of his more faithful disciples have fled, Nicodemus comes closer than he's ever come. Having beheld the beauty of God in his power, the power to heal, power to forgive, power to free, power to dignify, was he now in the end brought to his knees by a God who would withhold that power, willingly suffer all in the name of love. Frank Laubach, uh, in a recently published collection of journal entries, writes about the beauty of God that is so lavishly painted in the mountain peaks and the sunsets and the ocean waves. But then he goes on to write this. There is in the universe a higher kind of beauty. It is the beauty of sacrifice, of giving up for others, of suffering for others. A woman has not reached her highest beauty until she lays down her ease and chooses pain for bearing and nursing a child. A man has not found his highest beauty until his brow is tinged with care for some cause he loves more than himself. The beauty of sacrifice is the final word in beauty. Did Nicodemus finally tear off his robes at the sight of the beauty of sacrifice? Some think so. But then again, John is careful to call Joseph a disciple in this passage, but not Nicodemus. And we never read of Nicodemus in the other three Gospels or in Acts or in any of the New Testament letters. There's no way for us to know for sure. And I certainly hope he became a disciple at this point. But what we do know for sure, and what John is trying to show us, is that Nicodemus lived alongside Jesus for his whole ministry. But he never experienced the life of God for himself. He remained forever on the fringes, always a spectator rather than a participant. Something was drawing his heart out of his chest, but he just could not bring himself to take off those robes that he might be healed. When I was leaving Brooklyn saying goodbye to a church family that we had planted and walked with for many years, Uh, those that we were particularly close with gathered to pray over us during our final week there. And I'll never forget Gemma, one of our pastors, uh, as she was praying for me. She said, Tyler, God's reminded me of this one scene from Michelle Obama's biography. And I think it's for you. What's coming next is not a political statement. Just relax, everyone. (laughs) So there's this part where she talks about her first ever piano recital. And she had learned to play piano in her own house. And the piano was so old that there was a a little bit of a groove dug in the key for middle C. And that's where she learned to play and would always practice. And then she steps onto the stage in front of a crowd and she's in a new place. And she lays her hands on the keys to begin to play, but there's no groove for middle C. And she can't find where to start. And so she panics internally. And there's, there's a moment, it felt like a couple of minutes to her, but who knows how long it was, where she was just feeling over the keys, trying to figure out where to start. And then eventually she just pressed down on a key and began to play. And as she did, she found all the keys in the right place and got lost in the music, in that new environment, just like she had back in her, in her, in her own living room on that old piano. And she said to me, Tyler... God is inviting you to lead his people in a new place, but if it's his spirit that's leading you, it's gonna feel like regressing before progressing. It's gonna feel more like a child at his first piano recital, panicked for a minute, trying to find middle C, but from that place of vulnerability, you'll get lost in the music again and find yourself right at home. See, God was trying to say to me through this picture, I've got more for you, man. I've got a next chapter, but it will not feel like a promotion. It'll feel like becoming a child again. His invitation to me was and is, will you say yes to that? And I share it because I don't think it's just for me. I think that as a church, to walk into the next chapter, to enter, to get this biblical story, not just known or even spread, but lived, some who are comfortable will have to experience vulnerability first. And then afterwards, the melody will carry you. That was Jesus' invitation in Nicodemus. Discover what you already know in a new way. But before you feel alive, you're going to have to feel lost. A man must become a child again. The subtle tragedy of Nicodemus is that in scene after scene, Jesus is awakening something in his heart. He felt the breath of the Spirit on his face. He stood on the banks of the Spirit's river and observed the life. He was drawn again and again to Jesus, the one the Spirit rested on, but he did not drop his robes that he could know that life for himself. The very life he'd memorized on paper, sung in the Psalms, preached about in the temple, it was on offer right in front of him. But he kept his robes on, held himself together, and clung to his respectable self. Nicodemus is the first to construct a version of faith that stays on the periphery, turning what Paul called foolishness into the world into quite a respectable dance. He was the first, but he's not the last. There is a version of following Jesus that stays on the periphery, that delights in the claims, that studies the life and enjoys the view, but does not risk becoming like a child. Does not risk foolishness, does not risk vulnerable nakedness, does not risk pulling off our robes, and tragically then it stops short of the spirit of the living God. (sighs) So what do you miss out on? What did Nicodemus miss out on? What does it cost you to keep your robes on? It costs you faith, hope, and love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's a famous line. It's wedged right in the middle of a bunch of instructions on the proper expression of the life of the Spirit in the local church. And then we're said, but these three will last, faith, hope, and love. That's what you miss out on. You miss out on faith. I mean, after promising the desperate naked disciples that he would clothe them in the power of the Spirit, as the final act before his ascension, Jesus leads them on a two-mile walk from Jerusalem, where they were staying, out to Bethany. Luke 24, 50, when he had led them to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. See, we learn so much about the heart of God from the way that he chooses to use his limited number of days on this earth in a resurrected body. Bethany. Bethany. That's where he wanted to take them. Why Bethany? Because place matters and moments matter. I spent the last 12 years of my life in New York City. It's, it's the closest thing I've got to a hometown. It's the longest I've ever lived anywhere in particular. And so if you were to say to me, hey man, let's go get a New York slice. I'd say, I'd love to take you for a New York slice. And, and, and we could go to a Pisa Shoals right here in Portland because to be quite honest with you, they're doing it right. (laughs) And they've got a slice there called the Polly G, which is pepperoni with Mike's hot honey, which is made right in in Brooklyn, and it is legendary. We could go there and we'd have a great time, but we could also book a flight to New York, and we could take a cab from LaGuardia to Polly G's Slice Shop. And we could sit down together in one of those little linoleum booths that you cram into in every famous New York pizza shop. And we could get the pepperoni and hot honey slice right there from the source. And if we did that, you'd probably remember it forever. Because place matters, and moments matter. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He was making a moment that could mark them and lead them into the next chapter. And that's what Bethany was it was a place that matters. Because Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's where Mary anointed him with a jar of costly perfume seven days ago. It's where the crowds chanted Hosanna earlier that week. It's where they stayed that whole week in the house of Simon the leper, who is no longer a leper because Jesus healed him. See, Bethany is the place where their faith can be reawakened. It's where a band of scared, grieving, confused disciples can remember who it is that's guiding their journey. It's where the paraclete can come and find them and draw alongside to help. That's what Bethany was. It was a flight across the country just to go to a pizza shop when they've got the same slice a mile down the road. It was a moment that Jesus was creating to reawaken their faith that had shrunk back in fear. And without the desperation to enter this life, the willingness to embrace the confusion, disappointment, fear, and grief that so often comes with it, we also miss out on the faith that he fans into flame right in the midst of all of those conditions. And then there's hope. Later on in Acts 5, Peter and John get drugged before the Sanhedrin. They are brought before the high priest and the ruling council. It's a very familiar scene. And they were warned to stop preaching about Jesus. And in response to the stern warning from those in power, they shared the gospel with the very people threatening them. The priests are defensive. Peter and John, they're free. They're free enough to invite the very people that are cuffing their hands behind their back to know real freedom. And then they get flogged for talking about Jesus, and this was their response. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. The priests are defensive, but Peter and John are free. They're free enough to dance with welts across their back because they're in the midst of an adventure. They're riding a thrilling wave. They're alive and unafraid and undefensive. So hope is not optimism. Hope is gritty Hope is the freedom to sing at midnight in a jail cell or to dance like kids in the light of day. Hope is the freedom that cannot be won by a promotion or taken by a layoff. Hope is the freedom to wear robes and be uh, adored with status or to take those very robes off because they never defined me anyway. But still wearing those robes, holding on to that status, that's what Nicodemus missed out on. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is Love. We started with a famous story from Augustine, a theologian with as much prestige as Nicodemus and a kid digging a hole in the sand, inviting him to take his robes off again, right there in between church services. And I wanna close with another story from another more recent intellectual giant, the theologian Karl Barth. Barth retired in 1962 at the age of 76 and as a farewell, he took a lecture tour through the US and after speaking at the University of Chicago during a Q&A, a student asked Bart if he could summarize his entire life's work, all the volumes that he had written into a single sentence. And Bart paused and then responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And his point was that the starting point is also the destination, that we never stop wading deeper and deeper into the revelation of Jesus' love for us, for you, for me it's why the apostle john late in his life long after he'd written his gospel wrote a letter to the churches in which he said this in first john 4 16 and so we know and rely on the love god has for us you see the question is not do you believe in the love of god nicodemus believed in a god of love the work of the spirit is in those last three words The question is, can you say with conviction, alongside John, I've come to know and rely on the love God has for me. Those last three words, has for me, they turn a distant idea into a personal relationship. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to turn doctrinal statements into personal relationships and new foundations to live from. Please don't miss out on that. So here's what I want to do to close today. I I want to name the thematic work that I believe that God is doing in us as a people and in many of you as individuals. Because language is freeing. When we have language for what God's doing within us, then we can interact with him about it in prayer. We can converse about it with one another. We can enter into the life of it more and more. Language frees us for more experience and more life. And i found language for what I believe God is up to in this church in Jeremiah 31, which speaks of destruction and tearing down and building up and planting. There has been a time of destruction and tearing down in this church family, and God has watched over it. God has protected this church family, guarded this family. And my sense is that right now, so many of us, the greatest thing we can imagine is some semblance of the recovery of what was. And yet what God has in mind is something even better. It's a season of building and planting. And I think many of you have the same sense that that there's a season of building and planting that's beginning, and it's right here on the same old foundation. But building and planting does not start with call or action or doing or joining in any way. It starts with receiving, with receiving his love afresh. It's why from that place of building and planting, uh, we go on to read this in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. It won't be like the last chapter. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He uses the language of marriage. This is the covenant I will make with my people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. In the last chapter, I chiseled my law, who I am, onto stone tablets so they'd never forget it. But in the coming chapter, I'm going to write it in their inner being so that they can live from it. See, it starts in individual hearts and he's a husband to us. And this law, it's the wedding vows, The promises he makes and will never break. And the days are coming and have come when those vows will not be chiseled onto stone tablets or written on a page, but will be written on individual hearts in this family so that we can live from the experience of his love. I believe that God wants to romance you, friends. And that that's what he's been up to. And romance is not primarily intellectual, it is experiential. I believe that he wants to woo your hearts that you might know his forgiveness, his grace, his favor, his affection, his love, that you might know that it's yours, that it's all yours, that you've ravished his heart with just a single glance. And in response to these promises, in the very next chapter, Jeremiah buys a field. It's one of my favorite moments in the whole of the Bible because Jeremiah is living in prison, Jerusalem is still occupied by Babylonian conquerors, and he purchases land in enemy-occupied territory, meaning he goes to someone who has a deed for land under a government that doesn't exist anymore because it's been conquered, and he says, I'm interested in purchasing the family farm, and that family farm currently has army barracks of an invading enemy living on it, and while they do still have a deed of purchase, it's worthless now, and the guy says, you want... Sure, and Jeremiah purchases that land. What's he doing? He's acting in faith because God says there's a time of building and planting coming and it's gonna happen on the same foundation. And so Jeremiah invests in a way that is wild and faith-filled and courageous and free, but what gives him the courage to do that? It's a new experience of the love of God right there before the work ever takes place. Romans chapter five says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, love, not our love but his, the one who loved us first, he pours that love into our, our hearts and his love gives us courage. It awakens our souls. It alive, enlivens our wildness. It always starts with love. Faith and hope are coming but they're the product of love that's been received.